that this is a two-part sermon. Don't normally do that, but there's just so much here that I, I could not fit it all into one sermon. And But the whole text is printed because it is one unit of thought. So I didn't want to break things up with maybe verses 12 to 14 and then next week, 15 to 21. So we'll be looking at all of, we'll be reading all of that this morning. Um, I'll be preaching mostly on 12, 13, 14, but the entire context will be kind of in mind and in the background, hence why we're going to read it here this morning. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow, let us pray. Father, we pray that by your good spirit, you would shine the light of your grace and of your holiness and of your power and mercy into our hearts and into our minds this morning. God, please remove the distractions in our hearts and in our minds and help us to be able to focus in with faith on your word, which you have given to us for our saving health, which you've given to us for our edification and growth in grace. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Around 1690, there was printed what would become one of the most successful children's books and educational tools for the early colonies here in America, the New England Primer. And it's fascinating just how well this document weaves into one, both natural teaching about our world, but also religious teaching or teaching about the Christian faith. Perhaps what stands out the most is the way it presents the alphabet for children's memory. For the letter P, P 
Peter denies his Lord and cries. Q. Queen Esther comes in royal state to save the Jews from dismal fate. R. Rachel doth mourn for her firstborn. S. Samuel anoints whom God appoints. And do you know what's written for the first letter? In Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. The truth about Adam and, and how he brought sin and death and condemnation into the world was seen as so fundamental and important that children learned about it at the youngest of ages. And it was assumed that this was actually understandable by a child. Maybe not all of the intricacies of this teaching, but the essence of it. But as you may well know, I'm afraid that the Bible's teaching on Adam and on sin has fallen on hard times in the world today. Evolutionary theory, in part at least, has crowded out belief in a historical Adam in many quarters, and the desire to not offend has caused many churches and Christians to downplay or to soften the reality and the dangers of sin. But this morning, we, uh, we want to see what God has to say about the meaning and the implications of this truth summed up in that nice little saying, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And first, we want to look at Adam and the question of sin. Adam and the question of sin. We don't generally like talking about sin. If we consider sin with reference to ourselves, we don't naturally, enthusiastically embrace the conclusion, you know, that we are sinners. Or if you consider sin with reference to others, it's easy to not want to come off as judgmental or harsh, even if you're simply speaking the truth. And in the broader culture, it's obvious that we don't want to factor sin into discussions of who we are as a people. You have books like Humankind, A Hopeful History, written in 2019 by Dutch historian Rutger Bregman, it's translated, who argues throughout his analysis of history that we've really gotten it wrong all along that man and human nature is not corrupt and depraved, but that humans are fundamentally, quote, friendly, peaceful, and healthy. I was talking to somebody in the Netherlands a few months ago, and they actually said that to keep an eye out, there's probably going to be a Netflix uh, series made based off of this book. Uh, I guess we'll see if that actually happens. But, you know, hearing that, that human nature is friendly, peaceful, and healthy, it's no wonder that the New Yorker called the book lively. Forbes said it was convincing, and People Magazine described it as the riveting pick-me-up we all need right now. But really, what we need right now is the truth of God's Word, and the truth is that sin is real, sin is universal, and sin is offensive to a holy God. And the scripture teaches that sin and death came into our world through one man, through Adam. And because Adam was our representative before God, his sin of eating from the forbidden tree became our sin. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Okay, what does this actually mean? 
Well, it doesn't mean that we sin merely in imitation of Adam, as if the reason we find ourselves sinning since we were children is because we're merely following the bad example of our first parent. This was the teaching of Pelagius, a popular 5th century, I think he was Irish actually, so appropriate for St. Patrick's Day, uh, Irish monk uh, who taught that we're all born with, you know, use the fancy phrase, a tabula rasa, with a blank slate, that our human nature is not inclined or predisposed toward sin, but that it's just radically neutral. It could go one way or another. And so if we sin, it's because of a misuse of our pristine free will. No other reason can be assigned to it, not even Adam's fall. But rather than imitation, the Bible teaches imputation. Rather than imitation, the Bible teaches imputation. That Adam's sin was imputed to us. That the guilt and the corruption of it has passed on to us. That in some sense, somehow, when he sinned, we personally sinned. And one tragic example in the world, uh, I think, can illuminate what we're talking about here. Now, tragically, even infants die. But why do infants die? Why do they receive the wages of sin? I'm not talking about or denying a medical explanation for death, but I'm saying why do infants die, period, at all? We can't say they suffer the effects of the curse because they hated their neighbor or because they cursed God. They're not sufficiently intellectually developed for that, are they? They die because they have sinned in Adam. The wages of sin is death. No one dies without having sinned. Infants aren't capable of sinning like we do, but they still die. So why do they die? They die because of Adam's sin, and the guilt of that sin has been imputed to them. And we need to be careful here when we think about God. We don't want to impugn to him injustice because God is not out to seek after the life of innocence. God, as we saw in chapter 2, his judgment is according to truth, and his judgment only falls upon those who are guilty. And this means that the same thing is true for all of us. Paul says, death spread to all men because all sinned. And this means that all sinned in Adam. And so I hope we're beginning to see just the, the gravity and the weight of this matter of sin, that it is a life and death matter, that sin destroys worlds. Think of the flood. You know, the world was wiped out in a sense. Peter calls it the old world. Uh, because of sin, nations have crumbled because of sin. Countries, communities, families, individuals. Sin is a serious matter. And notice this sin and death reigned in the world even before the Mosaic law was given, even before sin was given its full recognition in the law on Sinai. It says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Well, what's the point here? Sin is real. Sin is universal. 
and sin enters into the world and into our hearts because of the one sin of Adam. Before we move on to our next point, we can ask how these truths, how this teaching, how this doctrine should affect us in our own discipleship. Three things to consider. Firstly, we should own and acknowledge this truth. As Christians, we know that this isn't the final word about who we are as God's people or even who we are as human beings. But in order to have a complete view of God, of ourselves and of our relation to God and of the gospel, we need to willingly embrace this hard truth that the guilt and the corruption of Adam's sin belongs to us. This doctrine shows us the gravity of the curse. And while never excusing evil, it also begins to shed light on the sin and the evil and the suffering we see around us in the world. Why is there evil? Because Adam sinned. And it also shows us how desperately we all need a savior from this sin. Now, secondly, we should strive in prayer against sin in our own lives. Though this primal sin is forgiven us in Christ, though it is mortified and progressively put to death by the Spirit, we should earnestly pray for increased sensitivity in our lives to what is sinful. And we should pray for more grace to turn from sin and to walk with the full armor of God so that we do not stumble and are not crippled in our fight against sin. And third, since we saw that this sin contaminates infants and children, parents, this one's for you, prayerfully and in reliance upon God's grace, do what is in your power to see that your children experience this sin-removing mercy of God. This is one way we love our children whom God has entrusted to our care. We do this in a few ways. We do this by correcting them when they sin in appropriate ways and at appropriate times, of course. We do this by instructing them in the ways of our God. We have an example of this in Proverbs 4. It's not a plug for the small group, but it's just, it's here. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts, do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live, get wisdom, get insight, do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. But we also do this by praying for our children, that God would touch their lives and that God would guide their lives. Every, I mean, Soren's pretty young, but every morning I still pray that in God's timing, he would give Soren a new heart, that he would give Soren faith and repentance, and that he would be more of a godly individual than me or Shelby ever were or will be. Pray for your children. And finally, we do this by giving them a godly example to follow. Now, godly doesn't mean perfect, 
We, mis we make mistakes along the way, but we lead a life that they can imitate. Okay, so much for Adam and the question of sin. Now we want to look at Adam and the question of Scripture. Now when we get to this passage, and really when we come face to face in this modern world with any questions about Adam, the question does come up. Did all, of this, did all of this really happen? Did Adam really exist in a garden with Eve? Were they really tempted and deceived by a talking serpent? You know, were there, were there really these two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life? Did God really cast them out from the garden and send a cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life with a flaming sword? Did Adam exist? Was he, in a, was he an, an historical figure? Did he exist in the same way that, say, George Washington existed? There's not a unified thought about this. New Testament scholar James Dunn, I mean, this guy's, people love this guy. He said, it's actually unclear whether or not Paul considered Adam to be an historical figure. He says it's, it's besides the point of Paul's argument in Romans 5 to make such a judgment. Karl Barth, a highly influential theologian, he's all very, he's assigned reading in lots of seminaries these days. These days. Uh, well, this is what he said about it. The entrance of sin into the world through Adam is in no strict sense an historical or psychological happening. And another theologian, last quote, Paul Tillich, he said, Theology must clearly and unambiguously represent the fall as a symbol for the human situation universally, not as the story of an event that happened once upon a time. Remarkable, right? This is remarkable. Well, here at New Hope, we want to search the scriptures to see what's true. We want to begin with the scriptures. We want to conform our beliefs to fit what the Bible has to say rather than try to fit what the Bible has to say into our own preconceived notions of what is possible or of what the world has to say or what is faddish. You know, we want to begin and end with the scripture. After all, if the Bible is only made up of myths and moral lessons, then, by, then why bother with it? Why bother with getting up and coming to church every morning to hear about it? I can get very much the same thing by watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy or the Wizard of Oz on my sofa, right? But as the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter 1, recounting the transfiguration, we do not follow cleverly devised myths. We do not follow cleverly devised myths. We have every reason to believe that when God says when he suggests, when he implies that Adam is an historical person, that we can also affirm that Adam was an historical person. Consider that Adam is mentioned in the genealogies of Genesis 5, 1, or 1 Chronicles 1, and in Luke's account of our Lord's genealogy in Luke 3. And it would be completely arbitrary to believe that David existed. We know David existed archaeological evidence. More than that, we have the Word of God. But, you know, it'd be arbitrary to believe that, that David existed, that Abraham existed, that Joseph, you know, Jesus' earthly father's father, according to the flesh, existed, only to disbelieve that Adam 
existed. In talking about divorce, our Lord in Matthew 19 quotes Genesis 2 without batting an eye. Paul mentions Adam and Eve in 1 Timothy 2. There he actually grounds his argument concerning church leadership in the historical reality of both Adam and Eve. And in our passage, the analogy between Christ and Adam totally breaks down if Adam did not exist as an historical figure. I'm going to quote someone, Michael Reeves. I think he's, he's dead on and, and helpful um, when he said, Yet it is not just Paul's language that suggests he believed in a historical Adam. His whole argument depends on it. His logic would fall apart if he was comparing a historical man, Christ, to a mythical or symbolic one, Adam. If Adam and his sin were mere symbols, then there would be no need for a historical atonement. A mythical atonement would be necessary to undo a mythical fall. With a mythical Adam, then, Christ might as well be, in fact, would do better to be, a symbol of divine forgiveness and new life. Instead, the story Paul tells is of a, his, of a historical problem of sin, guilt and death being introduced into the creation, a problem that required a historical solution. In other words, Christians, it is necessary for us to believe the Bible, not simply or merely with respect to its ethical statements, its commands, you know, to love your neighbor as yourself, but also in the historical claims that it makes. In other words, we can have complete confidence that what we have in this book is the inspired and infallible word of God. Treasure it, never doubt it, and live your life in the light of its beautiful truth. We looked at Adam and the question of sin, Adam and the question of scripture. I changed things up last minute, so I don't have a corresponding S here. We look at Adam and the question of typology. Adam and the question of typology. Now, typology is kind of a $5 word. Uh, I understand that, but we're going to have to dig into it just for a second if we want to understand the passage. And this is also going to set us up all the more better to understand the analogy between Adam and Christ, which we'll dig into next week. Notice, Paul says of Adam at the end of verse 14 that he was, quote, a type of the one who was to come. Christ was, or Adam rather, was a type of the one who was to come. What could he mean by that? A type of the one who was to come. When we talk about typology, we're talking about how Old Testament persons or events or things or institutions foreshadow Christ's person and work in some way. There's a correspondence between the two things, between the shadow and the substance, between the type and the anti-type. For instance, the Exodus is a pattern of how God delivers his people from bondage. David, King David, is a type of Christ when he defeats Goliath, defeating the strong enemy of God's people, just as Christ defeats sin Satan and death for us. The animals sacrificed in the sanctuary point beyond themselves to the one sacrifice 
given once for all for us, for our purification. Joshua leads the people into the promised land of Canaan, just as Christ leads his people into the new creation, which is really what the promised land pointed toward all along. There are many, many examples of this because all along through the scripture, scripture from beginning to end points to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the main character of the scripture. And Adam serves as a type of the Lord Jesus in this way. Just as Adam stood as the head and representative of a people, and just as his response to God's will affects all of those whom he represented, so too is the Lord Jesus the head and representative of a people, and his response to God's will affects all of those whom he represented. Adam disobeyed, so all of those under him were made to be sinners, and they were subject to death. But Christ, Christ, the second Adam, he obeyed God's will without wavering, without faltering. He withstood the temptations of Satan in the wilderness, unlike Adam, who fell at Adam's temptation in the garden. Adam blamed his bride Christ died for his bride. Adam sinfully ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. and He was banished from the tree of life. The second Adam, however, Galatians 3 says, was hanged on a tree, all so that we might have free access to the tree of life. In a very real way, we can say that Christ is the tree of life. You see, because Adam's sin has passed on to us, because it's been imputed to us, we can't outrun it. We can't strip it off of ourselves like an old smelly garment. It's too profoundly mixed into who we are. And we can't outrun our own histories of sin either, can we? At least we can't do this by ourselves. But Jesus comes as the last Adam and stands in our place. He stood condemned in our place for you and for me, erasing everything that stood against us, whether it was Adam's imputed sin or our own folly and sin. And by trusting in him, by turning to him, the good news is that God no longer reckons us as being in Adam, but rather in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. This is good news. This is good news we should believe and keep at the forefront of our hearts and minds. And next week, Lord willing, we'll start digging into this analogy between Adam and Christ. And I think it's going to be an exciting time. There's so much here for us to, to believe and so much for us to, to live out in our lives, all because of what Christ, the second Adam, has done, repairing the ruin and the misery that the first Adam has brought. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a just God, but we thank you that you are a merciful God. We know and fully acknowledge you could have wiped out 
all of humanity after the sin of our first parent. God, but you were gracious to us and you promised even in the garden a redeemer. And we thank you that we now live on the other side of the cross where we don't anticipate his coming, but we rejoice that he has come. Help us to revel in the redemption that he has brought and help us also to look forward with eager anticipation when we will see the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, face to face. We love you, God. We thank you for your word. Help us this week to be cautious and uh, cautious of, of sin, to be reminded of its dangers, but also to remember that we are in Christ, that we are no longer in Adam. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.